Welcome, this is Marcia for Radio Eye, and today I will be reading the National Geographic magazine dated 11-2022. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Please join me now for the first article titled Fire Island by Maya Y. Haas. The lava streams that bulldozed part of La Palma shocked residents of the Spanish Canaries and became a lesson in living with the volcano's fury. The air ahead shimmers with heat as I approach an entrance to the underworld. Wind roaring in my ears, I carefully follow the footprints of my guide, Octavio Fernandez Lorenzo, across a blackened landscape on La Palma in the Spanish Canary Islands. This is almost as far as we can go, he says suddenly, stopping a few yards from our target, the maw of a volcano, volcanic cave known as a lava tube. We continue a few more steps toward the entrance where a private drone operator had recently registered temperatures of 338 degrees Fahrenheit, hot enough to bake bread. Fernandez Lorenzo, vice president of the Canary Federation of Speleology, has been keeping close watch on the slowly cooling cave. He hopes to eventually enter to gather clues about one of the archipelago's most destructive volcanic eruptions in 500 years. For nearly 86 days, starting September 19, 2021, molten rock coursed from cracks high on the island's Cumbra Vieja Ridge, inching downslope in incandescent rivulets that branched and rejoined like the strands of a braided stream. The volcano did not directly claim any lives, but the eruption gushed more than 261 million cubic yards of lava and built a cone of ash and rock over 650 feet tall, where we now stand. Just a year ago, this area of the island was a verdant pine forest with a scattering of homes, now, only the tallest parts, the upper branches of trees, the tip of a lamppost, the ridge of a roof, are visible above mounds of coarse black sand. Entranced, entranced by this dystopian scene, I barely register Fernandez Lorenzo's suggestion that we head uphill, his voice muffled behind a gas mask. But then his tone changes. Up, 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 he says, each word increasing in volume and urgency. We're going to burn. The wind has shifted in a gust from the valley below, potentially blasting us with scorching air. The ground crumbles and shifts beneath my feet as I struggle up the steep flank of the volcanic cone to find a safer perch for surveying the scene. La Palma has a long history of eruptions, but its fiery fits usually aren't considered dangerous. The chemistry of its lava makes its flow as sluggish rivers rather than explode, in the dramatic blasts that devastate other parts of the world. The last eruption on the island was in 1971, when molten rock burst from a fissure in a sparsely populated region near the southern coast, providing a show of geologic pyrotechnics that caused comparatively little damage. Since then, though, the island's population has grown. Over 86,000 people now live on 273 square miles of land. When the volcano erupted last year, lava swallowed more than 2,800 buildings, 864 acres of farmland, and over 43 miles of roads. Many difficult years of reconstruction lie ahead, hampered by lingering magmatic heat and an unclear economic future. 
Around the world, about 60 million people live in the shadow of active volcanoes. So as the global population continues to grow, disasters like that seen in La Palma will become more common. Perhaps by better understanding what happened on this tiny, tiny island, its residents and those in similar communities can better prepare for future volcanic catastrophe. Volcanoes have built La Palma, says Fernandez Lorenzo. We have to learn to live with them. Destructive as they may be, volcanoes are the lifeblood of the Canary Islands, a subtropical archipelago some 50 miles off the coast of Africa. Past eruptions sculpted the land into a spectacle of nature, from sweeping coastal cliffs and black sand beaches to mountains packed with plants not found anywhere else. Over the centuries, nutrient-rich lava flows have broken down into fertile soil. When Castilians conquered the islands in the 15th century, they ravaged the indigenous population and converted the land into sugar plantations, which then gave way to other crops. Before the 2021 eruption, half of La Palma's gross domestic product came from bananas grown for export. Exactly what drives the Canaries' volcanism is still debated, but much of the firepower likely comes from a plume of superheated rock rising from deep underground, known as a hotspot. As the African tectonic plate inches over this plume, new volcanoes and baby islands are born. La Palma is one of the youngest and most volcanically active islands in the Canaries. The northern volcanoes have fallen silent, though, and for the past 150,000 years, La Palma's eruptions have struck exclusively in the hot, dry south, which is bisected by the Cumbre Vieja Ridge. Magna, magma rises like a curtain under Cumbre Vieja, exploiting cracks or weaknesses to rush to the surface. No two eruptions follow the same path, a process known as monogenetic volcanism, which means scientists never know exactly where the next one will pop up. As the recent eruption showed, this is a huge challenge for protecting the thousands of people who live on the slopes of the ridge. And after five decades of volcanic slumber, many locals have never witnessed their island's full geologic power. There, seem, there also seems to have been a disconnect between the activities scientists observed at the volcano in the days leading up to the eruption and when the public understood would happen. The result was devastating. We didn't know what was coming, says Anna Jessica Acosta Cruz, a local shop owner and previous resident of Todoque, a town now entirely paved over in jet black rock. We didn't know it was going to be this demon. The earthquake swarm that's kicked up on September 11, 2021, was one clue to the potential for disaster. The ground also began to swell and shift, a sign of magma moving below. Authorities quickly activated the island's volcanic emergency plan, which brought together a scientific community of eight organizations and universities to pore over data and figure out what might happen next. The plan communicates increasing volcanic hazards using a four-color traffic light, green, yellow, orange, and red. On September 13th, authorities set the level to yellow, which means that the public should pay attention to official communications because of an increased eruption risk. The earthquakes, which numbered in the thousands, migrated northwest as they grew ever more shallow and intense. On Thursday, September 16, we, are all, we all were almost sure that there would be an eruption, says Stavros Melitlides, 
a volcanologist at the Spanish National Geographic Institute, IGN, the official body responsible for volcanic monitoring throughout the country. The big question was when. A 2011 eruption on the neighboring island of El Hierro was preceded by months of earthquakes, yet the situation in La Palma seemed to be progressing more rapidly. Still, the scientific community couldn't reach a consensus that a blast was imminent. IGN's director, Maria Jose Blanco, said in later testimony to the regional parliament, such a declaration would have required politicians to change the volcanic alert level to orange, kicking off evacuations. But those are complex and costly, and timing is everything. Ask people to leave too soon, they may return to their homes before the threat has lapsed. If they leave and nothing happens, they may not trust future warnings. On the morning of September 19, authorities began evacuating several dozen people with reduced mobility, saying they were worried about damage from the earthquakes. Then the volcano erupted. The alert level still sat at yellow. On a warm June day, nine months later, I meet up with Sharon Backhouse, director of Geo Tenerife, a UK company that has organized educational trips around the Canaries for nearly a decade. When she saw the disaster in progress on La Palma, she stayed to document the eruption and recovery efforts through local residents' eyes in a project known, now known as Hashtag Volcano, Volcano Stories. Sounds of genera generators and jackhammers greet us as we approach the remains of a school, La Laguna's early childhood and primary education center. Its director, Monica Vigna, peers through a chain-link fence surrounding the property, now dwarfed by a wall of lava rock nearby. As Backhouse translates, Vigna shows pictures on her phone and describes what the school used to look like. About 150 students, ages 3 to 12, once gathered in this trio of flat-topped concrete buildings, painted brilliant blue, trimmed in white. At first, the lava flow bypassed the school, and Vina hoped the complex would be spared. But luck ran out on October 20. Vina pauses, fighting back tears. We always thought it wouldn't happen, she says, her voice barely audible above the construction din. It's very sad to see it like this. Just one building still stands. The fan of an air conditioner droops on its spindle as if it were made of putty. A lamppost is split down one side. We pass a hefty tree toppled on its side, its roots in a death grip around chunks of concrete ripped from the ground. For Vigna, the chaos is a potent reminder of the value of education, especially when it comes to understanding local hazards. We knew what a lava flow was, but we didn't know the impact it could have on the population, Vigna says. She plans to start bringing scientists into the school to talk with students about volcanic blasts. They should learn about the dangers, she says, even if nothing happens. Almost a year later, many of La Palma's families remain in temporary housing, waiting for promised funds from the Spanish government and decisions about how to rebuild. Some are struggling to prove ownership of their land after leaving behind legal documents in the rush to evacuate. Then there's the debate over how to rebuild on such a dra dramatically altered landscape. Some parts of the new lava flow will likely be preserved as a national park to be a poignant reminder of the island's volcanic underpinnings. Other parts will be reclaimed by agriculture and buildings as soon as the deep rock fully cools. But the challenges are steep. Much of the flow is what residents called malpais, or bad land, because it's full of jagged rubble that shifts underfoot and can cut clothes and skin. 
and crops won't grow on fresh lava flows, so soil must be moved in from elsewhere on the island. Despite Combre Vieja's unpredictability, some are hopeful the tragedy will offer lessons for future volcanic events. For example, changes to the current alert system could disentangle actions taken by the authorities, such as ordering wide-scale evacuations from proper communication to the public about the urgency of a pending disaster. Such lessons may reach beyond La Palma's shores. Sitting at the Volcano Cafe in Santa Cruz, the bustling capital of nearby Tenerife Island, volcanologist Milet Lidis and I talk of the many challenges of living with slumbering volcanoes. As a constant stream of people and cars passes by, I wonder aloud about concerns for a future eruption here, the Canaries' most populous island. Millet Lidi's response is immediate, his voice low. We think about it every day. The next article, A Pacific Rebirth by Enrique Sala. Devastated by warming in 2016, protected coral reefs around the southern Line Islands have made an amazing recovery. The most astonishing and heartening coral rebirth the world has ever seen came to light recently. To understand how it happened, you have to go back to April 2009. That's when I assembled and led a team of young, passionate marine biologists on our first expedition to the remote and uninhabited southern Line Islands, which belong to Kiribati in the central Pacific. The five islands are the tips of ancient volcanoes that rose to the surface between 85 million and 70 million years ago, forming an underwater mountain ridge that crosses the equator, the line, in their name. Our goal was to conduct the first scientific surveys of marine life around the islands. We knew almost nothing about this archipelago. It took us longer to get there by plane and ship than it took the Apollo astronauts to reach the moon. On ocean maps, the water around the islands was a featureless blue. We didn't know what we were going to find under the surface. What we found was paradise, reefs untouched by humans, with a thriving coral jungle full of large fish. Sharks and other top predators were so abundant that their total biomass outweighed that of their prey. On every dive, we saw endangered species, such as the enormous Napoleon rasa, up to six feet long. The southern line islands changed our understanding of coral reefs. Scientists like me had no idea what pristine reefs looked like. The abundance of fish around the islands was easily explained because of their remoteness around about 2,000 miles south of Hawaii. There was no fishing, but would the reefs also be able to withstand global warming? In 1997-98, an intense El Nino, a cyclical warning event, had caused coral die-offs across the Pacific. The corals in the southern Line Islands, though, were in such good shape in 2009 that we believed they might be able to stand up to further ocean warming, provided they were shielded from other human assaults. Informed by our findings, the Kiribati government announced plans to protect its waters around the islands, out to 12 nautical miles from fishing and other extractive activities. At Pristine Seas, the project I direct, we, re we rejoiced. We thought these reefs had been saved forever. Then came a calamity. In 2015 and 2016, the strongest El Nino ever recorded moved across the Pacific. Corals die when the ocean temperature exceeds a certain threshold for too long. Scientists measure 
a reef's exposure to such danger in degree heating weeks, DHWs. During the 1997-98 El Nino, the Southern Line Islands had suffered four DHWs. The 2015-16 event, coming on top of another two decades of global warming, pushed the DHW count to 15. The jump surprised even those of us who are well aware of the risk of ocean warming. Along the northern Great Barrier Reef in Australia, reefs were monitored in real time by scientists, who found that two-thirds of the corals had died. But what happened to the pristine reefs in the southern line islands? I was impatient to know, but all I could do was worry. Very few people ever go there. Then in August 2017, an incredible opportunity arose. Our pristine seas partner and board member, Ted Waite, finished an expedition in French Polynesia and offered us his research vessel. For two weeks, I was committed elsewhere, but my colleague Stuart Sandin at Scripps Institution of Oceanography was available. He and his team had been part of our 2009 expedition and had to return to the Line Islands in 2013. They were ideally placed to repeat the coral surveys one year after the warming event. What they saw was what we had feared. As soon as he was back online, Stuart told me half the corals had died. My heart sank, but as he gave me more details, the horrible news turned into questions and eventually possibilities. Most of the dead belonged to one genus, the cauliflower coral, Pocillopora. Just one living colony was found. Though Acropora were also hit hard, no other types had suffered as much. They had all survived 15 DHWs. That meant that in the southern line islands, at least, all those corals were resistant to strong warming. The next question was, would Pocillopora recover and Acropora too? Would they prove resilient? In many parts of the Caribbean, when corals die, their skeletons are rapidly overgrown by brown seaweed. But in Stewart's photographs from the southern line islands, the coral skeletons were covered by crutose coralline algae, which form a pink limestone crust. When corals reproduce, their larvae larva drift into the water for days, weeks, or longer before they settle to the bottom and grow into a new coral colony. Their preferred substrata to settle on, crustose coralline algae. They don't grow on seaweed. So the conditions were there for corals to come back in southern line islands, but would they? There was only one way to find out. We had to give the reefs time and return to survey them. Last year we finally did, after waiting through two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Two days north of Tahiti, our ship, Offshore Solution, reached Flint, the first of three islands we would visit. The old gang was back, 12 years older, but with the same enthusiasm. On deck, we watched the breakers along the green island, our eyes glimmering with curiosity. I wanted to savor the moment, like an extraordinary meal you eat slowly, bite by bite. But I also wanted it all immediately. We put on wetsuits, jumped in our inflatable launch, and raced to the reef. In 2009, I'd been filled with excitement and adrenaline. Now I was terrified. Would the reef be a ghost? I grabbed my mask and plunged in. When the bubbles cleared, I could not believe what I saw. Had anything ever happened to this reef? The bottom was covered with live, gorgeous corals, all the way down to a hundred feet. I shouted at the top of my lungs, climbed back on the inflatable, and hugged my buddy, Christine C.'s cinematographer, 
Manu's son, Phoenix. Both of us put on diving rebreathers and jumped in. We were back in paradise. In three weeks of diving around the three southernmost line islands, Flint, Vostok, and Millennium, Caroline, Atoll. We measured spectacular coral recovery everywhere. The reefs were back with exuberance, but they were changed. Here and there, Hosilopora, that had died in 2015-16, were recovering slowly, sometimes on top of their dead, like trees sprouting from stumps in a coppiced forest. But most of the space left by the dead corals had been filled by other species. The above-water part of Vostok Island is so tiny that it would fit 14 times into New York City's Central Park. The coral reef extends outward around the island, creating a relatively shallow platform on its leeward side that can be seen in satellite photographs. In 2009, that pl platform was populated by Pusillopora. We expected most of it to be covered now by coral skeletons, covered in turn by pink crustose coralline algae. When I dived at Vostok, I thought my brain had short-circuited and I'd landed in Wonderland. The reef was covered by light blue corals that looked like giant roses, a garden of Mantapora aquatilaratuta, stretching as far as I could see. A closer look revealed a dead Pusillopora encrusted with coralline algae under the Mantapora. How could Mantapora have covered the entire reef? How could it have gone from dead cauliflowers to thriving roses in only five years? Nobody was there watching. But we had a clue. The Montipora colonies were all about the same size. That suggests to me that corals elsewhere around Vostok had been reproducing sexually and releasing millions of eggs, which soon hatched and formed a massive cloud of larvae above the reef platform. A rain of Montipora larvae may have fallen and settled on the pink crust within a day, a single event that changed the seascape for years to come. At Millennium Atoll, Atoll meaning that it has a central lagoon, the biomass of fish and the abundance of sharks was even larger. The dead corals had been overgrown by several species, notably branching Acropora. The only bad news was that the giant clams that formed multicolored pavements in some areas of Millennium Lagoon were dead. In 2009, we had counted more than 42 giant clams per square yard in those areas. In 2021, Three hours of swimming over the lagoon roofs, uh, reefs revealed only five living clams. The seawater temperature in 2015-16 probably had been much higher in the lagoon than in the four reef around the atoll. That created a lethal clam bake from which the giant clams may never recover. But the coral recovery amazed us all. No one on our science team had seen anything like it. Our coral specialist, Eric Brown, a U.S. National Park Service marine ecologist, estimated the Millennium Lagoon had, on average, around 7 million or 8 million coral colonies per square mile, a shocking number. We had to go through the calculation several times to believe it. It was a reminder that coral reefs do a much better job restoring themselves than any human interventions can, so long as there are enough living corals around to replenish the reefs. What did we learn from the recovery of these super reefs? The corals that were resistant to the phenomenal 2015-16 El Nino provided the reef's resilience. The southern line islands lie in one of the hottest hotspots of warming in the Pacific o Ocean. So the corals here apparently have adapted to heat. 
For new corals to grow over dead ones, though, the skeletons need to be covered by pink encrusting corallines instead of fleshy seaweed. What provided these ideal conditions in the southern line islands? We believe one reason is the off-the-charts abundance of herbivorous fish, the enormous parrotfish and schools of hundreds of surgeonfish, their gazer, grazers, the zebras and antelope of the reef, and they gobble every tiny fleshy algae that dares to grow on the dead coral. When you're diving in the shallows, you hear those fish scraping at the reef nonstop. Crustose coralline algae, which have calcareous skeletons, survive the grazing. The fish prefer to eat the equivalent of yummy lettuce rather than limestone. That observation reinforces the conclusion we reached in 2009. Full protection from fishing and the enormous fish biomass it yields is necessary for a reef to be able to bounce back. Full protection promotes resilience, but will it be sufficient if extraordinary warming events like the 2015-16 El Nino become more frequent? Will these reefs have enough time to recover in between crises? We don't know. Coral reefs harbor more biodiversity than any other ocean ecosystem, provide food security for millions of people, and protect our shores from devastating tropical storms. If we are to preserve them and all the benefits they provide, we need to give them space. As the world tries to agree on how to reduce carbon pollution, we can buy time by protecting reefs and fostering their strength. The difference between a dead reef and a super reef lies in how much we care. Threads of Memory The art of felting carpets for warming stone homes, for decoration and cultural expression, has long been a pursuit of women and girls in Ingushetia, one of Russia's southernmost republics. Folk music has immortalized the wisdom woven into these rugs called Istings in Ingush, which are traditional throughout the Central Asia and the Caucasus. The labor-intensive craft founded in Ingushetia after, Chinese, after Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin ordered the deportation of nearly the entire predominantly Muslim population during World War II. We had to hurry, says Ingush ethnographer Tanzia Zarova. Ten years ago, she and a small group of young enthusiasts scoured their mountainous homeland for carpet fragments, memories, and guidance. The investigation led to a new workshop in the capital, Magas, as well as classes in schools, competitions, and a book that includes hundreds of historical ornaments or designs from fertility symbols for newlyweds to labyrinths intended to confuse evil spirits. In this photo taken in the village of Kazakhur displays an Isting by Zelina Komsova, both of whom learned felting at the Magus workshop. Today the wool craft is a thread connecting them to generations of women before, says Datsurova. It's as though there's a genetic memory in the hands. This article by Eve Conant. Wax, paint, real hair, fake eyeballs. Where else does Madame Tussauds do these parts add up to onlookers' delight in the unblinking presence of their favorite celebrities? At the Tussauds location near New York City's Times Square, one of 25 such attractions worldwide, studio manager Matt Hillhorst and four other artists maintain the roughly 200 figures on view from Albert Einstein 
and Ariana Grande to Kamala Harris, the first ever VP in WAX. This concludes readings from National Geographic magazine for today. Your reader has been Marsha. If you've enjoyed hearing this content, please give us a call at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening and have a great day.